All right, Alexander, let's do a Ukraine update. And let's start off with what is happening on the front lines. And then we can talk about more sanctions, <laughs> more sanctions against Russia, sanctioning diamonds. They are going to be sanctioning diamonds now. This will, uh, this will definitely bring the Russian economy to tatters, no doubt about it. <laughs> and, uh, and we have some interesting statements, interviews from Stoltenberg, from Milley. Uh, Budanov gave an interesting interview to The Economist. Uh, Zelensky talked to 60 Minutes. So uh, let's, let's go through all of these stories one by one, and let's start off with what is happening on the front lines. I will say just one quick thing about the situation on the front lines, because we're hearing a lot of villages being captured, or, or the Ukraine military is, is making progress on, in, in various villages in the gray zone. My feeling is that this week, while Zelensky is in the United States, we're going to hear a lot of stories about Ukraine capturing villages. And my hunch is, is that when he returns back to, to Kiev, these villages will revert back to, to being contested or Russia controlling these villages or whatever. So I think this week we're going to get a lot of stories about how Ukraine is making progress in, uh, in the front line. Anyway, your thoughts? Yeah, you're absolutely right. This is exactly what's going to happen. So yesterday I was reading in the uh, media, especially in Britain, by the way. Britain remains the ardent supporter of Ukraine, but uh, in, in the Anglo, um, in the English-speaking media, about you know how the Ukrainians have captured uh, a village called Klesheyevka, which is near Bakhmut, and how previously they'd captured another village in the same area called Andreevka. I'm going to say quickly that neither of those claims is actually correct, or at least. That's my understanding of the situation based on reliable sources for, you know, or at least, shall I say, sources which I have followed. They're all open sources. I mean, I don't have any contacts on the front lines amongst Russian or Ukrainian soldiers or anything like that. But open sources who have reported this war from both sides reliably and who have had a consistent record of being factually correct about what is happening, they deny these claims. But before we do, we do that, let's just, just talk about the overall situation. So there is basically two, two areas where Ukraine has been conducting its offensive. One is in the south, to you know the Zaporozhye, uh, Kherson area. This was going to be the major axis of advance. They were going to break through the Surovikin line, the fortified lines. They were going to take Topmak. They were going to advance all the way to Militopol. They were going to then push on to the Sea of Azov. They were going to uh, sever the land bridge. You know, a lot of people, yourself, Brian Poletic, others, question whether even achieving any of those objectives would have had the decisive outcome that people in the West say. But it would have been dramatic. And here I have to point out something which goes all the way back to a video we did before the offensive even began, in which you said that the whole offensive, as it was being discussed and planned, with, you know, rolling tanks, <laughs> rolling out infantry fighting vehicles, moving, breaking through the front lines, you know, and hail of fire and all of that, that it was straight out of a Hollywood movie. And we now have Zelensky saying this himself. The people's understanding of it was that it was, you know, they were, they were thinking that it'd be like a Hollywood movie 
be and the reality is different. And the Financial Times says exactly the same thing. They're all now using the same metaphor or simile. I always get the two modelled to describe the offensive in the South as it was originally planned. Anyway, the, the Southern offensive has failed. I mean, as of, as of today, I mean, unless there's some new dramatic event, they haven't broken through the front lines. They're not deploying armoured vehicles close to the front lines. They're launching light infantry assaults. Everybody now acknowledges this case. Zelensky says that it's all turned into an artillery duel. And in fact, the whole situation on the front lines is basically static. And can I just say, that is a strategic victory for the Russians. You can spin it any way you like. You can talk about, you know, the fact that the Ukrainians have advanced a couple of hundred meters here, a kilometer or two there in that area. But the fact is the Ukrainians have failed to achieve their objectives in this part of the front lines. So over the last couple of days, they've refocused back towards Bakhmut, doing the opposite of what the Americans and the British told them to do. So over the last couple of days, huge Ukrainian effort, lots of troops, lots of assaults by, you know, again, mainly light infantry to try to break through on the southern flanks in Bakhmut to capture this village. Klesheevka, the Ukrainians have been trying to capture this village since the beginning of May, they reported before three times that they've captured a village called Andreevka, which is all of 75 people, tiny little place. Um, the Russians dispute that the Ukrainians control Andreevka. Yesterday, the Ukrainians said that they'd captured Klesheevka. Again, the Russians dispute that claim. They say this is this village is all but destroyed. No one controls it. The Russians have some positions in this one area of Klesheevka. The Ukrainians have some positions in another part of Klesheevka. Neither side really controls Klesheevka anymore. The village is destroyed. The major Russian positions in this area remain intact. The Ukrainians have not broken through. But, of course, reports about the capture of this village, they're appearing yesterday in the British media, just as the reports about Andreevka have appeared in the British media. You would have thought by now people would have learnt to be a little more careful. There were those reports a few weeks ago about Rabotino being captured. Still see that said sometimes, but the reality is fighting continues to happen in and around Rabotino. Nobody controls it. We had the same claims about the Ukrainian breakthrough of a few weeks ago. Remember that? They'd actually pierced the front lines. Again, we don't hear so much about that anymore because clearly it hasn't happened. There was the capture of Staromayorsk a couple of weeks ago on the in another part of the front line, the Vremivka salient area of the front line. Lots of talk about that. That was also supposed to be the decisive breakthrough. Again, that particular village apparently remains contested. And the reality is everywhere the situation is stuck. But as you said, Mr. Zelensky is packing his bags. He's about to go to New York. He's going to go to Washington. He's apparently not going to address Congress this time. 
What a surprise. He's going to meet people in Congress in small groups, it seems. He's certainly not going to meet some of the Republicans like Marjorie Taylor Greene, who are very unhappy with him. But he's not going to try and convince them. But anyway, he's going to meet his friends in Washington. But he's got to come with something to show that all those tanks, all that money has delivered something. So you're absolutely right. He's going to pass off claims that villages have been captured. He's going to hail them as proof of great victories. And he's going to say, you know, we're making these advances. We're surging forward. We're gaining momentum. We're accelerating our advance. So please give us 20 billion more. I wonder if people like believe him in the House and the Senate. I, mean, I don't think I so. I wonder if they know that they're not making any gains, but they're just going to play along and pretend that, yeah, Ukraine has captured Rabotinia for the 37th time. Um, Andrevka, they've captured it another 15 times back and forth. But um, I wonder if they believe the, the media when they come out with these stories or if, uh, if they know the truth. Right. I think there may be a few And we're people. talking McConnell, yeah. by the way. We're talking McConnell and yeah. Uh, yeah. Graham and um, Schumer, these, these types of guys. And the people. And Ro- Romney and all those uh, people. Yeah. Them, yeah. Right. I think a few of them perhaps do believe it or because they want to believe it. But I think deep down none of them do any. None of the important ones do anymore. I think they've heard this, these stories too often. And this is where all those very interesting interviews now come tumbling out, because, of course, we've had Mark Milley. He comes along and he says suddenly that the offensive has only limited objectives. Well, that was absolutely not what we would be told, you know, a few months ago when it all began. And remember, I mean, you know, people like Lindsey Graham, he went to Kiev before just a week before the offensive started, he was shown the plans. He said this is going to be you know, a big event. The Russians are going to get smashed. We've had all of these comments by people like Petraeus, Hodges, all those ex-generals telling us essentially the same thing. We've had endless numbers of talk shows predicting the same thing. We've had uh, people like Romney and others talking you know, about this enormously successful offensive The result is all of these people must know that it hasn't turned out that way. They are probably inwardly um, dismayed that Zelensky is coming back cap in hand, having achieved so little. I mean, let's be clear about this. Even if Zelensky could absolutely, definitely confirm that his forces control Rabotino and Klesheyevka and Staromayorsk, if you could take troops of US and British journalists to inspect these places, which, by the way, notice he can't do. He's not able to do that. They're too bitterly contested for that to be possible. So even if he could do that, these people, the McConnells, the Ronnies, the Lindsey Grahams, the Schumers, um, all of the others, they weren't expecting that hundreds of millions of dollars of American aid was going to give Ukraine control of a few villages that nobody has heard of. That was not what this was supposed to be all about. It was supposed to be breaking through to the Sea of Azov, putting Crimea under siege, presenting Vladimir Putin with an ultimatum 
and perhaps ultimately achieving regime change in Russia. The, the, when Milley talks about limited objectives, he is telling us that this offensive has failed. And when Zelensky says that, you know, things are progressing very slowly and it's now basically an artillery duel and each side is firing 40,000 rounds of shells a day, which is nonsense, by the way, that is grotesquely over-exaggerated. Again, he's telling us, in effect, the same thing. When Budanov is telling us that, also, he too is telling us the same thing. And notice, he is the most extreme hardliner of all. He was the one who said, you know, we'll be in Crimea in, by the summer, that he'd be holidaying in uh, Yalta before very long. He was the person who's been the most optimistic and the most confident of all. And even now, he is now saying, well, it's not going to work out quite like that. And we've had was it Admiral Bauer of the U.S. Navy. He says... Well, was it, was it the U.S. Navy? I can't remember. NATO, anyway. He comes yeah. forward. Bauer, Bauer. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we can't yeah. keep up with the artillery. Demands the artillery. Uh, ammunition is just impossible situation. You can see that everybody now is trying to pick a way through the problems that's the failure of this offensive. Stoltenberg, I forgot Stoltenberg, perhaps the most important of all. We, we, we're, we're not going to achieve clear-cut victory this year. We must prepare for a long war. A long war. And everybody, all of these people, the Romneys, the Schumers, the uh, 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 Jake Sullivan as well, by the way, they all know that that is not the message that the American people want to hear. That's the first thing to say. And, of course, the Pentagon knows that this isn't a situation that the United States realistically can afford to continue indefinitely. But anyway, when they talk about a long war, what they mean is that they have failed to achieve victory this summer with this offensive. And it has to be said again, the failure of the offensive is a strategic victory for Russia. Yeah, so the, um, the narrative four months ago was three to five days pretty much and they would be at the Sea of Azov. It was going to be a quick lightning strike that would lead to the Russian military crumbling and uh, eventually lead to, uh, to the Putin government collapsing. Obviously, that hasn't happened. Obviously, after three and a half months, they're not even uh, out of the, uh, the security zone. Um, the, the new narrative, because I think all of these, these people that you, that you mentioned, Stoltenberg and Milley and Schumer's, McConnell's, even the Budanovs and, and Zelensky speaking with 60 Minutes, I think they're, they're all betting on the fact that, uh, that the citizens of the U.S., because at the end of the day, that's, that's the big country, that's the main country, that's funding. Bankrolling Ukraine is the United States. And uh, if Europe is going to give money to Ukraine, it's going to be because the U.S. tells Europe to give money to Ukraine. So I think all these people are banking on the fact that, that the U.S. citizens are either not going to care about the hundreds of billions going to Ukraine, or they're going to have uh, a short memory. And this new narrative about a long war is going to be the, the narrative that's, that they're going to pass off as, as being what they've been telling everybody all along, forgetting the fact that you know, just four months ago, five months ago, this was going to be a lightning strike 
defeat and collapse of Russia. And before that, it was going to be an economic collapse of Russia. I mean, you know, we've heard all the different narratives. And Absolutely. And a new one. So, so I mean, my, my, my question to you is, is this new narrative also includes listening to Bodanov. It also includes some sort of military uh, industrial complex in Ukraine. Drones being manufactured, um, factories being built, uh, a Ukraine that's, that's, that's building up to take on Russia over the next 10 to 20 years. I mean, that's, that's what a lot of these people in the interviews were either saying outright or hinting at. There's going to be this big military uh, industrial complex industry in Ukraine that is going to prepare for this long war and is going to fight this long war. Americans, you don't have anything to worry about. We're, we're preparing for this long war. We're even ramping up our ammunition production as well. Yeah. Your, your so thoughts. This, so this is, this is, oh, absolutely. Let's, let's deal with the military industrial thing because, of course, it's a message to the United States. We don't need to sustain this thing indefinitely because eventually the Ukrainians will become self-reliant. The United States in the past has made similar claims about its other wars. I'm old enough to remember, for example, in Vietnam, that there was a period process at one point called Vietnamization, that we would withdraw US troops from Vietnam and we'd build up South Vietnam, Vietnam and its army and it would be able to continue the fight all by itself, that South Vietnam would become self-supporting and able to defend itself. And if you remember, they said the same about Afghanistan, that Afghanistan, the military in Afghanistan had been brought up to the level where it could continue the war by itself. And that's the same message that is being given to the American people now. So let's just keep sustaining the war just a few more months, a few more years, maybe. But there is an end point because eventually we're going to bring Ukraine to the point where it is self-sustaining. By the way, just to say, Blinken also said that very thing over the course of a speech that he made at Johns Hopkins University, which we're going to eventually discuss. Um, but anyway, that's that's the new idea. That's the new story, the new narrative that is being sold to the American people. Budanov is doing the same in Ukraine. He's telling the Ukrainian people... Don't worry, even if American support is going to start to reduce, it's not a big deal because we will soon be able to produce all of this equipment ourselves. So if the US starts to distance itself, well, we've got through the critical period, we've seen off the Russians last year, and we're going to see them off again this year. And in the end, we'll be able to produce all the weapons that we need. We can produce our own tanks, our own infantry fighting vehicles, our own ammunition. We'll be able to do it. We'll be able to defend ourselves without the Americans' help. Now, that is absolute nonsense. I don't think anybody seriously takes that really believes that. I don't believe even Budanov himself, who sometimes seems to me to have a wildly unrealistic understanding of things, actually believes that. Every single day, 
Ukraine, get, Ukraine gets hammered. The British Defence Ministry has said that the Russians are now clearly stockpiling more missiles in advance of another missile offensive that they're going to be conducting across Ukraine in the winter. The New York Times has told us that the Russians have been um, able to restore missile production and they're able to produce missiles at the same rate as they always have indefinitely. And that's, in fact... Almost certainly an understatement because I've been getting lots of private information now, which suggests that, in fact, Russian production of missiles has increased manyfold. So nobody really believes that there is going to be a big military industrial complex established in Ukraine. That is a fantasy. Now, the Americans are also talking about increasing um, ammunition production. And this has been another thing that now they're saying. They're saying that they're going to produce increased ammunition production to 100,000 rounds a month. This will be by 2025. Now, previously, by the way, we were hearing that it was going to be 85,000 rounds a month by 2028. Then it was going to be 2025, 85,000 rounds a month. Now it's going to be 100,000 rounds of ammunition a month. This may be true. I mean, I'm not going to query this. At the moment, they're producing, according to some claims, 26,000 rounds of ammunition a month. Nowhere near enough. Nowhere near enough. Now, the New York Times says that it, today... The Russians are producing two million rounds of ammunition a year. That's the New York Times. Again, I'm getting other reports that say that it is a lot more than that and it's going to be increasing still further. But let's go with that figure of two million rounds of two million rounds of ammunition a month. That, according to the New York Times, is what the the Russians are producing. A month, um, a year, a year, a year, a year, a year, sorry, a year, two million a year. That's what the New York Times says. That's double what the United States hopes to produce by the end of 2025, except that the Russians are achieving that production now. So, you know, it's, again, a fantasy. How do you get Ukraine through the next two years until the United States is, you know, up and rud ready to produce that level of ammunition. And of course, when it does produce a million rounds of ammunition a year, if it does, by 2025, it can't give all its ammunition to Ukraine. It's got to hold back some, perhaps half of it, perhaps more of it, for its own needs also. It's got to replenish its own arsenals. It's got to replenish the arsenals of its allies. Again, these are fantasy things, and they bring us back to this ultimate fantasy about the long war. How do you sustain a long war, a war of attrition? Way back in the spring, before the offensive, the US was telling the Ukrainians, under no circumstances, get yourselves into a war of attrition against the Russians. You can't win a war of attrition against the Russians. You can't uh, uh, sustain a long war. Now, that is what the United States and the West collectively are going to work towards. What, 
A few months ago, before the offensive, they were saying it was impossible, which is why the offensive had to happen, and a quick victory had to be achieved. That, according to the new narrative, is the new plan. Yeah, so that's a good, uh, a good segue into, into my next uh, question before we get to the, uh, to the diamonds and the sanctions uh, issue. How does, how does this talk of a long war um, work with the, the speculation that Blinken and various people in, uh, in D.C. and the State Department would like a Korea-style freeze to, to the conflict? Is, is, is this, once again, two different factions in D.C. trying to, to get their policy uh, pushed through with regards to Ukraine? One faction is looking for a freeze, and then they can can rebuild and, and then do whatever they need to do. The other faction is saying, you know, forget the freeze. Let's just uh, keep on fighting and, and we'll build this big military industrial uh, powerhouse in Ukraine and we'll prepare for the long war as Ukraine is fighting. Or, or are these things connected? Is, are, are these groups working together to, to get the freeze and to, uh, to achieve um, a long war, kind of like Minsk? Get the Russians to sign on to something and then uh, wait eight to ten years as you rebuild Ukraine's military and, and um, trick the Russians into believing that that some sort of, uh, of a long-term peace can, can take hold. I mean, how does all of these, how do these recent statements uh, work with the statements from last week, which were focused on some sort of, uh, of a freeze? I think you are... You put your finger on the most important single question, and I'm going to, I'm going to, because of course I, you know, it's difficult always to know exactly what's going on within the administration. But I'm going to make a suggestion, and I think this isn't just, uh, you know, guesswork. It is informed guesswork based upon the records, the previous records of these people. Now. I think there is one faction, one extremely hardline faction. Let's call it the Victoria Newland faction, which is there and it is strong. And, you know, it's not just within the administration itself. Uh, Victoria Newland is married to Robert Kagan. Robert Kagan is an influential person, not just in the administration, but in American politics generally, in American foreign policy generally. They don't want any kind of negotiation at all. They are absolutely committed to war without end. They still want to break Russia. They still want to see victory. They still believe or, and say to each other that victory is achievable. Robert Kagan actually wrote a long piece not so many months ago in which he says that we have the new world in our grasp. It's almost there. We All we have to do is keep going a little longer and the Russians will crack and everything will come right and we will achieve final and total and absolute victory and then we can go after the Chinese. That's not quite what, how he puts it, but essentially that's what he says. And so I think those people are still there. I think their influence is growing weaker almost by the day. And I think in the ascendant by contrast, are the people who want the freeze. And the people who want the freeze is the Pentagon, because it doesn't want to see its forces depleted. It's concerned about China. It is Jake Sullivan who wants to win the election. And it is 
the Tony Blinken group within the State Department, which has, I think, now started to distance itself from uh, the Victorian Newland group. And it was very interesting that in that same speech that he gave at John, Johns Hopkins University, um, Blinken went out of his way to lavish praise specifically on Jake Sullivan. He said, you know, this is the great person who's able to integrate defense policy and foreign policy and domestic policy. He he was basically, you know, praising Jake Sullivan in a way that I found really very interesting and told us very much that this is the connection that really matters at the moment. The Sullivan-Blinken axis. Now, they want to freeze because even though they are basically hardliners and in Blinken's case, very much hardliners. They also, I think, have still some moorings with reality. And they understand that the United States cannot sustain a long war. I should say, by the way, in parenthesis, that the United States has never been good at any point since the end of the Second World War in sustaining long wars. That is not what America does. Anybody who thinks it is able to win attrition wars is simply ignorant of modern history. But let's put that aside. I think Sullivan, Blinken understand that this isn't really a, 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 an acceptable, a, 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 you know, a sustainable thing. So once again, you can see what they're doing. They say to the Russians, well, you know, you've got to talk. You've got to agree, agree to this freeze. Because you see, if you don't agree to this freeze, we will keep going forever. We will eventually exhaust you. We will provide, we will continue as long as it takes. We will provide as many weapons as Ukraine needs. We'll provide them with the Attackham's missiles. We'll provide them, we get our German friends to provide them with the Taurus missiles. We'll escalate, we'll increase ammunition production. You thought it would be 85,000 rounds by uh, 2028. We're going to produce 100,000 rounds by 2025. This is the narrative that's being said. So we're going to continue and we're going to exhaust you we're going to run you down so better take this deal now whilst it's still on the table because when you're run down when you're exhausted we might not be quite so accommodating and that's that's their diplomatic strategy i think the russians know it's a bluff and of course they will call it all right so sanctions another bluff um you know they, they ran out of uh, things to sanction a while ago, but it seems like they're they're still trying to to pick at certain industries and find something that they can uh, that they can sanction Russia Russia with. And they found diamonds. Now they've talked about diamonds in the past, uh, but they've never actually gone through with sanctioning the diamonds. There was some resistance from Belgium with regards to sanctioning uh, the diamond industry. And uh, there was just the reality that that sanctioning diamond production was not really going to to do much damage to to Russia anyway. So why go through with it? But because they've exhausted all of their their sanctions uh, possibilities, they've now come to to the point where they where they have to make the political decision and place sanctions on diamond production. And this is going to have a very bad effect. 
uh, not only on various EU member states, but it's going to have a bad effect between the relations of the United States and India, which you, uh, you messaged me about before we did this program. That's an interesting one. So what is going on here? Yeah, absolutely. Because, of course, what the United States is again doing, or not just the United States, but the neocons, the Baerbox, the Habex, the uh, Ursulas, all of those people, uh, you know, the enthusiastic supporters of endless and unlimited sanctions is, of course, as you rightly said, they run out of sanctions um, that, that um, can work. The oil price cap, remember that, <laughs> isn't really working. They have to import liquefied natural gas from Russia, so they're importing that in ever greater quantities. So, you know, you can't, however, admit the sanctions have failed. That's impossible. And you have to keep the pressure of sanctions up against the Russians. That's the narrative. And, of course, you have to tell people, your own people, that you're... Um, you're Conviction, your uh, uh, your determination remains unfaltering. So, even if you are buying more LNG from Russia, if you're doing all of these things, well, you know you, that they shouldn't misunderstand that. It's you know we have to smooth out a few of the wrinkles in the economic system, but ultimately we're still going to press ahead with more and more sanctions. And of course, there is an addiction to sanctions as well. You know, once you it's clear to me once you start down this road. I mean, you can't give it up. It's it's like one of you know all these other things people get addicted to. It's it 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 becomes ultimately compulsive. So you've got to come up with another set of sanctions. So you come after diamonds and diamonds. You know they're bright, they're glittery, <laughs> they're visible, they're concrete. Everybody likes them. So of course, sanctions. You sanction the diamonds, and of course, diamonds also have. Let's never forget something of a reputation. I mean, we've all had always heard about these stories about blood diamonds from Africa. So, these are the new blood diamonds. They're the diamonds from Russia. Now, so you come after diamonds. Now, Russia is a major producer of diamonds. It's along with. Um, I think still the African states, it's the major alternative producer of diamonds. And the Russians are, by the way, involved in diamond production in Africa. And they're a major trader in diamonds. But having said that, I, I looked at some of the figures here. And we're talking about trade that provides Russia with export revenue of around $4 billion a year. Apparently, that's the value of this trade for the Russians. Now, bear in mind, the sanctions that are proposed is an absolute prohibition on the import of Russian diamonds into the collective West. So the Russians could still export diamonds to other countries, to China, to India, to all sorts of places. So they're not going to lose all of that trade. Let's say they lose half of it, which is probably an overstatement. Well, it's not going to make any dent on their finances at all. I mean, it's, it, this, this is not going to make any difference. But it is going to affect business people in two countries. Now, if we're talking about Russia, in terms of Russia, the diamond industry is basically concentrated in one giant, I believe, state-run company, which is Al Rosa. It can absorb problems in the disruption of the Russian diamond trade like the big Russian oil majors have done. But the big country now involved in polishing diamonds, and it's 
True to say that that's mainly, you know, diamonds that are used in jewellery. But the big country there is India. India apparently accounts for 90% of polishing and processing um, jewel-grade diamonds. And this is an industry which involves lots of small business people. And the other country that's important in the diamond trade is, of course, Belgium. Belgium, Antwerp, is where diamonds traditionally are traded. So you want to buy diamonds, especially, again, jewel trade diamonds, you go to Antwerp. And there's various brokers there who will do it for you. Now, again, these are not big businesses. These are small businesses, profitable businesses, businesses that make people, you know, Comfortable lives, not as comfortable as in some businesses, but they do. Now, these businesses are going to be massively disrupted. And India, which is very important altogether in trade in gemstones, has not been consulted about this. And they are furious because, of course, they buy diamonds from Russia. They polish them in India. They Some of them get exported. They get traded through um, Antwerp, there's now going to be apparently or allegedly a prohibition upon this. There's going to be all kinds of regulations and rules about, you know, you have to register where, you know, the provenance of any particular diamond which comes from. You can see already the massive smuggling opportunities that are going to develop here. And, you know, we're talking about India, which is to be, I'm not saying anything against the Indians, but they have... Let's let's say that they're very skilled in getting round regulations. I mean, India is one of the most bureaucratic countries on the planet. It could only function if people in India were possessed already those skills. So that this, going to, this is going to be another smuggler's uh, dream, <laughs> and it's going to happen. But it's going to cause real trouble to the Indian diamond industry, which, as I said, has not been consulted about this. And, of course, the other thing it's going to do, ultimately, is it's going to destroy Antwerp as a diamond trading centre. You remember when they imposed the oil price cap, all those confident claims that the London insurance market, Lloyds of London, would be able to police it because other countries around the world wouldn't be able to replicate the services that Lloyds of London can provide. And sure enough, it turned out that they could. And Lloyds, as a result, London, which is already declining in importance as an international financial centre, has taken a massive push down in a trade that was critically important for London. Well, of course, exactly the same thing is going to happen to Antwerp. Antwerp, what's going to happen is that the trade is going to move, probably to India, possibly to somewhere else, maybe in the Gulf, Dubai might be a possibility, you know, uh, KL, might, you know, Malaysia might be another, you know, I don't know, I'm not going to try and speculate, but that's what's going to happen, inevitably so, that is what always happens when you impose these sort of restrictions, so what you're doing is, you're annoying the Indians, the Indian government is going to be very annoyed by this, bear in mind that, you know, diamond trade, uh, polishers, diamond cutters, these are small businesses, they're the 
heartland vote for someone like Prime Minister Modi. He's not going to be pleased about this. So he's going to want to defend the interests of these people because they're the people who vote for him. And of course, the people in Antwerp are going to be smashed. So utterly self-defeating, just as the oil price gap was, it will cause some disruptions to the market initially. The oil price gap, the whole, all the oil restrictions uh, did affect the Russians for a couple of months. They've now adjusted to that. Their um, oil and en their energy revenues are now back to normal, apparently. Same thing will happen with diamonds. A lot of middlemen, a lot of smugglers will do extremely well out of this. A, a lot of people who run small businesses in Antwerp and in India will face extreme difficulties the Indians will get through. It's far from clear that the Belgians will. And in the meantime, um, India and Prime Minister Modi has been given another reason to be angry with the Americans and another reason to want to push on with the BRICS and set up an alternative trading system in which India is a part and where it can trade without disruption. Yeah. Set up an alternative uh, location for the trading of diamonds outside of the collective West. Every move they make just further accelerates the, the multipolar world. It's, it's incredible. Yeah. I mean, I'm starting to think they want a multipolar world to happen. That's why they're, they're coming up with these sanction schemes. Unbelievable. And, and, and they're going to be hurting. The EU is going to be hurting. An industry in their own backyard. I mean, absolutely. They're in Brussels. They're going to be hurting an industry which is right next door to them. They don't care. Absolutely, absolutely. They don't care. They, you know, they don't. They're not interested or concerned about this. They don't. I mean, it, it's something. As I said, the Belgians put up a fight against it. But you know, little Belgium, <laughs> what it, what can it do? France, Germany, and all the others support this thing, and that's what's going to happen now. And there's no stopping it. Apparently. Yeah. There's no stopping it. All right. Uh, TheDuran.Locals.com. We are on Odyssey, BitChute, Rumble, Telegram, Rockfin, and on X. And go to the Duran shop. Use the code GOODDAY. Get 10% off all merchandise. Take care.